Welcome to 100 PM, the show where we interview 100 active product managers from startups to enterprise, everything in between, all from one great city every season. If you're joining us for the first time, be sure to visit our website, 100productmanagers.com. That's the number 100, productmanagers.com. It's the web's largest single free resource for product management topics. We've got tons of great articles about business, technology, and design, fabulous contributors, and the official must-read, listen-to-follow list, as recommended by our incredible guests, week over week. It's season one. We're here in sunny Los Angeles. I'm your host, Susanna Bate, resident instructor at General Assembly and founder of The Development Factory. Welcome, and thanks for listening. Today is a very special extended episode of our show. Our guest is Jacobo Plu, part of the founding team of YOI. YOI's mission is to unlock human potential in the workplace by providing intelligent performance data to employers. This conversation is about how small companies can learn to successfully sell to big companies. It's about how to sell yourself as an inexperienced product manager. It's a meditation on product design, predicting the future, and the fate of humanity in our rapidly evolving technological landscape. Wherever you are, I invite you to slow down and listen in. This is episode five of 100 p.m. So most uh, interesting place today, mm-hmm. maybe perhaps uh, for this whole project so far. And you uh, seem to be the most international candidate. Oh, wow. Right? So born in Spain. That's right. That's yeah. right. Studied in London. Mm-hmm. What are you doing in L.A.? So I came to L.A. about uh, 18 months ago now. Um, and I initially came to help uh, a guy called Keith Farazi um, build uh, his software company. Uh, it's called Yoi, Y-O-I, and uh, the company does human capital management. And Keith brought me over at the time I was in Philadelphia for a while. Um, he needed some help with design and with product, and he decided to bring me over to LA uh, at a moment's notice to, to help him restart the company and uh, figure out you know what product to build. And that was the, that was the beginning. Now we've built a company to a point where we have about 22 people. Um, and everything is amazing. When you sort of came on board and did this restart, did you, you know, distill it down to the two of you and start from ground zero? There was about four of us. Four. Um, so there's a couple of engineers. Uh, and yeah, we pushed restart uh, and we kind of changed direction. You know, the famous term pivoting in tech. And, and we started again. Uh, we figured what the market needed. We spent a bunch of time researching. Uh, and through through him, we had access to um, a few uh, high growth uh, technology companies that we thought would be sort of the ideal uh, candidate for early adopters. And we went out, talked to them, and we figured that onboarding and sort of the beginning of the life cycle of an employee at a large company is uh, there was a big gap, um, and a lot of the attrition turnover started to happen then when people fell unattended, they didn't feel engaged. And we thought if we could build a product for that, um, it could be very successful. 
you know, 18 months later, uh, the company's grown, we've got clients, um, we realized that there is indeed a, a gap in the market, um, and especially with millennials that, you know, tend to get bored pretty quickly, um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, you know, the idea of keeping somebody engaged, keeping somebody productive, and, and you know, helping them understand how to communicate with their team, how to do their job better, um, it really helps keep them around, but it also helps eventually the company be more productive as a whole. A lot of the people that I speak to, and I, I put myself in this category, mm-hmm. uh, arrived at product management through accidental tourism, right? A lot of the times, maybe not, maybe some have, you know, started in marketing and, and found themselves realizing I'm doing a lot more product management than I am doing marketing per se. Um, but you have actually a, a formal background in product design. Mm-hmm. Were you always obsessed with product? Like, did you just kind of come kicking into the world and say, I am, you know, design and build great products um not i it wasn't actually uh it was very intentional uh, i always figured that a technical background would be very helpful um if you want to stay somewhere uh in a technical field or in a design field and so uh, engineering for me was you know the natural like undergrad um i figured if i got that technical background then i could explore a more creative um, you know, master's degree or a more creative like job um, or more creative experiences. If I did have that, that would help me, you know, really frame and understand better uh, uh, sort of how to work uh, conceptually. Um, and so, you know, after an engineering degree, I thought, well, now I have to learn how to design because um, there isn't a lot of creativity in engineering degrees, I can tell you that. And so I went to design school um, and that was incredible um getting hands-on experience getting to prototype things and build and design and iterate uh it was it was amazing uh, and so i think to me it was always going to be uh close being close to the product and whatever i did it doesn't matter if it was going to be software if it was going to be a physical product a consumer product an enterprise product um, but i always wanted to be that sort of liaison between uh the technical guys and the creative guys. I think it's a very interesting place to be. What's the coolest product you had a hand in designing? Wow. <laughs> I think it was uh, it was actually back in in engineering school. Uh, my thesis project for uh, for my degree was uh, hemp bicycles. So I used a, a, a process called resin transfer molding, where I combined uh, soybean oil resin and, and hemp fibers. And uh, I uh, influx the fibers with the resin, and I created bicycle frames made out of hemp. They look very cool. <laughs> and can you fold them up? Um, how no, how no. taut are they? They're actually fixed, uh, and they're very tough. They're, uh, they're very durable. Um, and the idea was that it's a fairly easy process, and it doesn't require a lot of training or a lot of machinery. And so it's something you could easily outsource into uh, developing countries, especially because uh, hemp uh, just happens to grow uh, in a lot of tropical developing countries. So I figured, well, if you can provide those people with a means of uh, developing their own tools, uh, they'll be able to actually create a sustainable economy as opposed to us funneling funds uh, and you know doing things for them. Uh, and so that was sort of the idea. And I thought it was pretty cool. They looked looked amazing. They looked beautiful. So, you know, you're in software now. 
on your LinkedIn profile, you, you kind of demonstrated a few of the products, the physical products that, that were part of your past. And I guess people can go and look you up and mm-hmm. see all of these things for themselves. But I, I wonder, do you ever feel like it's not as exciting? Interfaces are awesome and yeah. I love it. But hemp bicycles sound pretty damn cool. So do you ever have these moments of going, well, electrons, you know, you can't touch them, you can't see them, you can't ship them to developing countries, you know, practically speaking, like we're talking about, do you miss that part? I do. Um, I think I think there is a component, uh, when you study design, uh, it's very natural to be able to touch and play with things. Uh, and when you work with software, that's somewhat removed. Um, and it's a lot more abstract and a lot more conce- conceptual. Um, but one of the things, one of the common threads that I think uh, will always stay with me and uh, I'd love to stay close in my career is the human component. I think uh, human experiences and, and human behavior are two interests of mine. And so um, when you build a physical product, human experiences are very much in your mind. And when you build a software product, especially for us, where we're trying to essentially deconstruct human behavior, analyze it, and then be able to improve it. Um, we're very close to that psychology. Um, and and yeah, I agree that uh, you don't get that aspect of touching and playing and prototyping as much, but um, you do get other things. You get scalability, which is much more difficult with uh, physical products, right? Well, you can, you can touch a million people with a piece of software in a second. Uh, and for me to manufacture a million uh, bicycle frames, you know, it would take years or months uh, and a lot of machinery and a lot of processes. And, and so I think it sort of balances out nicely um, the ability to impact large numbers of people um, with, uh, you know, the, the other side, which is a lot more uh, hands on, but also at a much more scale. I was teaching a product boot camp this past weekend and one of my students you know, was was very much kind of from the manufacturing world and, and was very much wanting to gain skills, but apply them in that space. And we were talking, you brought up the term pivot, right? These are all the terms that are now available to us. I like to call attention to that. We didn't have those terms. They weren't readily used, but the other one, you know, that we talk a lot about and that gets misused tremendously is minimum viable product. But, you know, we were doing kind of an introduction to the MVP and, you know, some of the classic examples that, that we've all heard about Wizard of Oz, concierge model, landing pages, and you know he asked me what case studies exist for an MVP equivalent to to physical products Mm -hmm. and I thought you know short of just simply prototyping something which is not really the same as an MVP I mean an MVP at least for me isn't just about building the quickest thing or or the first demonstrable thing it's about building the thing that proves viability in whatever you're trying to determine is or isn't viable. What do you think about knowing physical product? Is there a way to apply MVP concepts in that space, do you think? In physical products or in software? In physical Physical products. products. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, well, first of all, um, that's kind of, that term is the pain of my existence. (laughs) Being being a product manager. And so it's not always the one thing you want to hear about. Um, but I, I mean, absolutely. I think the way I always looked at it is what is the smallest thing you can build, the most simple thing you can build to prove the core concept? 
So if you're thinking about building a product to solve a specific problem, um, what is the one thing you can do that if it doesn't solve the problem entirely, it helps people picture or get the first hint at how the problem is going to be solved down the line. And so with physical products, I'll give you the example of the hemp bicycles. Um, in an ideal world, the whole frame of a bicycle will be made out of hemp. And so when you uh, sort of put it out into the world, the only thing you got to do is attach a couple of wheels, a chain, and you know, a couple of handlebars and, and a seat. Um, one of the issues that I run into is uh, structural integrity. So if you wanted to be able to join all the different uh, tubes in the bicycle using hemp, it require uh, a lot more precision in the way that you want the fibers, etc. So a little shortcut that I took was I created the, the joints, uh, I made the joints out of steel. So I created four main joints, which is where the bars uh, join in the bicycle, uh, and they're the highest stress points mechanically. Um, and you know they're fairly easy to manufacture they're casting pieces they can be manufactured at scale very cheaply and and so i use that in the first version of the product now what that helped me do is they helped me put together an actual bicycle that people could use and touch and play with but at the same time i could show them too that you know there were hemp bars there even though the whole bicycle wasn't made out of hemp um, they could see it, they could touch it, and they could use it in the same way that they would use a normal bicycle. And so you sort of start helping prove the point. Um, and you take the first step, and then from then on, it's like, how do we improve from here? So, you know, the whole process is sustainable. The whole process can be outsourced to people, uh, you know, to low-skill labor. And that was the idea. I think absolutely exists. Uh, it's just a matter of distilling it to the simplest, simplest terms. And maybe not using that terminology. That's right. So I have to go back. <laughs> now, I said I like the conversations to be organic, like hemp, and you said that term is the bane of your existence. That's right, yeah. So why? Because, you know... Eric Reese, if you're listening... <laughs> that's right, yes. Um, well, look... The, the, the thing with, uh, especially with startups, larger companies are a little different. Um, you're always under-resourced. So you'll always be playing catch-up. So if you don't like that, please don't join a startup because you'll always have more things to do than you can do. Uh, so especially when you're a product manager and you become this sort of facilitator between many different parts of the company, um, a lot of your job is prioritizing. Um, what is the, you know, if, if the house is on fire, what is the first room we need to put out? Um, I'm not going to start thinking about the furniture that I'm going to put in the room once the fire is out and I remodel the house. The first thing I have to think about is how to put out the fire. And so, um, you know, with MVPs, it's it's a little bit um, it's a little bit about that. It's clients always want more things that you can offer them. Um, you know, uh, the industry always wants more than you can uh, develop. And so, trying to identify. Um, what those things are uh, and what you can do with the people that you have it's it's an art and it's an ever-growing uh, skill that you have to develop um, but I, I agree I think we should find a better term <laughs> well and, and I think one of the things that I've seen the earliest iteration of MVP mm -hmm. was this is an experiment 
And so when you apply that, that more broad label of experimentation, it really frees it from the form of product at all. I mean, a, a lot of great experiments that um, people smarter than me conducted to prove viability, whether growth viability or value viability, weren't about the product at all. They were just about sort of clever ways to poke around at you know where there was pain or opportunity or something broken. And, you know, now people are talking about MVP interchangeably as like, you know, your beta built or your minimum marketable product, which is a very different concept. One is what's the minimum, you know, level of quality and polish we need to get this out the door and not have egg on our face, which could be a very different concept and a very different level of complexity and architecture and time spent. So, uh, you know, certainly I try to bring back that concept of this is an experiment. You know, how do you cobble together a few ideas, much like how do I demonstrate hemp uh, knowing that I can't get all of the pieces just right. But if people can see hemp as a bicycle, then I might be onto something. Of course. I think uh, one of the beauty, uh, one of the beauties of software is that a lot of the things that we build somebody else tried to build uh, before. Um, and it might not be the 100% solution of what we're trying to build, but it might be 50% or 60%. And so um, a good example, I'll tell you something that I was trying to do recently. Um, I was trying to uh, think, well, I have all this network of people that I interact with. I have friends, I have acquaintances, I have different people that I know. And my network is spread across many different platforms. And so it has become very difficult for me to be able to keep up with all of those relationships effectively. And I thought, well, I wish I had a product that helped me do that, right? I wish I had a product that was like my brain outsourced and helped me keep up, uh, keep up with those relationships. And I'm like, well, you know, but it would take all of these things to build. You know, I'm starting to think about the technical aspects of it, like architecturally it's this and that. And, and then I thought, hold on a second, what if I can just go out and look at three or four different free tools that do the different aspects of what I want to do and I just find a way to combine them? And the amazing thing with software is that you can do that. You can also do that with consumer products. Like you don't have to reinvent the wheel, right? You have to find uh, different products that do similar things or that do what you're trying to do to a certain degree, and then you tinker. Uh, and that's part of, uh, part of the process. And to me, it's actually one of the most exciting parts of the process. Right. beginning stages right well and and i think also what you're feeling into a little bit is never to underestimate the importance of pre-selling or actually having a plan for how you're gonna you know being you know running a software company we get entrepreneurs all the time and could you just build this for me for free? I don't have any money right now, but I just know that this idea is so good that once it's out there, it's going to be successful. And, you know, to them, I always say, I already know how to execute. You know, what I don't know is what your ability to create effective acquisition channels, create a compelling marketing strategy and actually build a business are. And I can't recover those hours based on it's This is the myth. You know, if you build it, they will come. And, and I think about the tinkering where I'm going with that is there's a lot of precedent, for example, for buying product that already exists slapping something over it or not even just, you know, just distributing it for a while and seeing, you know, trying to understand the market that's already there and then looking for, well, if, if 
we could improve this product. What would that be like for you, Mr. Consumer, Ms. Consumer? Okay. Tell us about Yoi. Tell us about, and tell us about Yoi. What does it do? Who is it for? Should we buy stock now? Those are my three. (laughs) Well, we can't buy stock just yet. Um, But so Yoi is a product that essentially helps companies um, develop and grow their people. Um, So we work with very, very large companies, um, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of employees, where... Uh, keeping track of how people grow and how people develop um, and how well managers are helping employees and how the machine works, the people machine works, gets uh, very complicated when you're in 72 countries or 100 countries and you have hundreds of thousands of people and tens of thousands of business units. It's it's difficult. But even within the you know smaller companies, uh, for management to understand uh, how different employees work and what things work with them and what sort of management styles are better than others, um, it's not always so easy. Um, as, you, as you know, one of the, the bigger issues in, in organizations of any size is communication um, and how you distribute knowledge across the organization. So what we do is we follow a very simple, the product follows a very simple um, uh, sort of process. Uh, and it's it's based uh, a lot in uh, what you can find in McKinsey's uh, research in terms of uh, people management. Um, so you have four steps. We have uh, data gathering, we have uh, analysis, we have uh, insight, and we have action. Um, and it's almost like an ongoing process that uh, sort of feeds in, into itself. And so we think our hypothesis is that in order for you to help people grow inside of the enterprise, you have to understand who they are and how they behave and how they perform. You have to analyze that data. Then you have to surface insights uh, in many, many different ways. It could be visual dashboards. It could be you know specific nuggets of information to the right people. And then you have to be able to drive action. So once I know what I'm good at and what I'm not good at, let's make sure I can improve on those things that I'm not so good at um, and take action and then measure it again. And so you're in this ongoing cycle that um, we believe helps people become productive faster, but also be more engaged uh, and understand better expectations and, and you know how to communicate and, and work with people and with their managers. And so we can do that for you know a small company of 10 people. We can do that for a company of uh, thousands of people. Um, and I mean, the idea is that if you uh, if you're able to and Reid Hoffman uh, writes about this in his book The Alliance is that the way that the workforce is changing we the idea of staying in the same company for 25 years it's you know like our parents did um, it's not so so uh, current anymore and so what you need to do is you need to be able to set expectations about uh, what you're going to be doing uh, in that company and in your job, and also uh, what you're going to get out of it as an individual. And so very much the future workforce, uh, it's going to become about growth and about development and about how, what skills I can gain out of this opportunity and what uh, I can provide to the, to the enterprise. I think our product uh, tries to help facilitate that and facilitate that growth. Um, and we're in a bunch of companies already. Uh, 
can't can't really say the number, but uh, <laughs> um, pretty successfully. And and the idea that you can understand human behavior and human performance and improve it, it's something that I think is very exciting. Is it challenging to sell to enterprise level customers as a company of you know you said now you're 22, before that you were probably 16, before that you were six. Do you have to do a lot of puffing out of the chest and and making it seem bigger or has enterprise come around to this idea that small and nimble can be something reliable too? Right. That's actually a very good question. Um, Both. I think uh, fast growth uh, technology companies like Facebook, eBay, LinkedIn, the ones that we all know, are really trying to drive that change, even though they are behemoths they're massive companies with people in you know all countries they really try to maintain that core startup structure um, and that has really helped develop the different ways in which you know people are managed within the enterprise um there are also companies that are lagging behind but i think there's definitely a sentiment going around where um companies are trying to sort of update themselves um and be able to to, to implement some of this new thinking. It is challenging. Selling to enterprise is very challenging, um, especially to large companies. The sales cycles are very long. It could be up to a year uh, from first point of contact to uh, actually deploying your product. And uh, there are a lot of gatekeepers. So you have to sell many, many times within different units and you know a, with different people to be able to to get your product in. And smaller startups are more challenged, uh, both uh, resource constraint and also uh, funding um, and, and the capacity to be able to um, do things like compliance and you know IT security and things that are not so present at smaller companies that uh, other incumbents in the market already have set up and have huge departments dedicated to that. But you know we also move very fast. And we're able to adapt to circumstances and requirements very quickly. Um, and we try to be very hands-on with our clients. And I think they really, really like that. They appreciate that uh, when they come to us, we're able to respond within a few weeks uh, and have what they need very quickly. While if they work with the oracles or the SAPs of the world, it could take months for them to get what they want. Right. It would be like looking in a mirror for them. Of They're course. like, we're already slowing up ourselves. The last thing we need is another slow uh, partner moving at our pace. Exactly. I noticed that, you know, you kind of bulleted some of the the core responsibilities of your role in in your LinkedIn profile. And and one that I sort of plucked out was managing the product roadmap. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the hardest aspect of of roadmapping as a core function for product manager? How do you combat that? Um, That's really interesting. I think uh, it's... It's something that people look at it, um, I think, sometimes uh, from the wrong angle. Um, product Roadmap is a lot about what's happening in the industry and what's happening with trends and where things are going and not so much about who you are right now and what you're currently doing. And so for me, uh, one of the main things that I, I have is I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader. I, I constantly, constantly read. I read hours every day. And so I have a, a good understanding of all the different players in the market. Uh, and I also understand where the market's going and where the trends are going and how it has evolved in the past 20 years, not way before I was even I was even here. And so 
I think that gives you a perspective and, and gives you the ability to understand uh, so how the how the chess pieces are going to move and and what are some of the things that are likely to come up in the next year, two years, five years. And sort of that's, you know, in terms of the market, that's one thing. Then another different avenue is people. Like, how are people changing? Um, this year, to, well, actually, it was 2015, millennials became the larger, wor- largest workforce in the U.S. Um, and that's only going to get bigger and bigger. Um, and younger generations operate and, and, and connect and communicate very differently, as you know, uh, than older generations. And so understanding how those people will interact with your product and what their requirements and expectations are going to be, it's very important. And so it's less about what you have currently, and it's more about understanding where the world is going. Um, and how you're going to be able to keep up with it. Um, yeah, it's actually one of my favorite parts. I think it's very uh, playing and, and trying to predict the future is it's a very exciting thing. So do you use, um, do you have any particular tools that you like or just sort of a crystal ball affixed to your desk? It's, <laughs> it's very much, uh, it's gut. It's mostly gut. I mean, I think if someone comes and tells you, I am absolutely certain that, you know, the future is going to be that and, you know, chatbots are going to be uh, the biggest trend in the next five years and we're all going to be conversational and UI is going to die and, you know, all these different things that we're starting to hear. Um, I think it's a fool's game. It, we don't know, right? So we have different degrees of certainty about different things, um, but we're not absolutely sure of anything. And so understanding that and accommodating for that uh, big uh, percentage that you might get wrong, it's it's an art. Again, it's, it's you know, you got to learn how to master that and get better at it every day. But luckily so far, we've been pretty good at, at figuring out what people want. Uh, we'll see how that plays out in the next couple of years we were talking offline before you know about this project 100 product managers and that you were saying you know actually there's not a lot of resources right now online surprisingly and and i said i think it has a lot to do with this kind of mystification of product management it's like everybody talks about it nobody talks about it none of our friends or family seem to really understand what it is that we do uh, people don't know how to sell it they don't know how to inspire it what do you think is I guess it's maybe this is two parts. Do you agree with that sentiment? And what do you think is the most misunderstood aspect of product management as a discipline? I think the number one, I'll take one at a time. Uh, Number one, uh, it's difficult to explain because it's not a product manager doesn't have a concrete deliverable. Um, when I tell my parents I want to be an engineer, I want to be a doctor, I want to be, you know, a painter, it's easier to grasp, right? Because it has this narrow definition where there is a clear deliverable and a clear outcome, right? If you're a painter, you'll paint canvases. If you're a doctor, you'll fix people. If you're an engineer, you know, you might work for Boeing and you build uh, jet engines or you might work for uh, Tesla and build, you know, wheels. And so with product management, it's you, you don't really, you're not the guy building things. You're not the guy designing things. You're not the guy, you're the guy thinking. Um, and, and you're the guy facilitating. And so it really helps if you're very good at languages. And the reason why I say that is because engineers use a different language than designers do. And that content does and that account management does and that sales does. And, uh, and so... Uh, you really need to learn how to speak all of those languages. Um, 
and and you're gonna be at the you know in the middle of all of those things and your job is the most important thing in my opinion is to be able to translate between them and to be able to help them communicate and understand expectations and also understand how to allocate resources um, and make again decisions based on what is what is the first room we want to put out right if the whole house is on fire i get a pick um and so it's it's a difficult thing to under to, to understand but it's also a difficult thing to explain um and it's it hasn't been easy for me to be able to communicate that to people that are not in the field uh or that are not technical uh, but it's i think it's a very exciting job you don't get a lot of the glory um but you do get a lot of the action um and i think that's exciting that's the that's going to be your block quote but right <laughs> Um, to use your analogy, and and I agree wholeheartedly about the translator concept. Which language is the hardest to learn, in your experience? The one that you're least familiar with. So for me, um, being a non-English speaker, uh, native speaker, um, I think content and how to build content. There are so many nuances into how to communicate things and uh there's so many different layers into when you you know when you write a question for a survey or when you write uh, a task for someone to do um i think it's 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 very complex and it has a lot of different parts so you know growing up uh as an engineer and being educated as an engineer and then being educated as a designer i'm very very familiar with those two things and uh i have a great interest in uh positioning and and branding uh and how to communicate things but uh content to me is it's a mystery and i so admire the people that can do that that by using a few words they can really convey so much um and they can uh persuade and influence people to do certain things and to answer things differently um and when we run ab tests for different piece of content how they you know asking a question one way and or the same question a different way it yields completely different results um i haven't really grasped that but hopefully you know slowly i'll get more and more of it you need the whatever the product manager's equivalent is of the oxford english dictionary it's exactly. the, the the content <laughs> content manager's bible or something it's yet to be written <laughs> in fact if they'll give you the first chapter if you just give your email and sign up to the mailing list exactly. first free chapter you mentioned and i was excited to hear this you guys have a bunch of general assembly graduates we do have um actually a former uh hr lead uh, general assembly okay um and we've hired a couple of designers i think from uh, ga and uh i think we might be bringing in a don't quote me on this one but i think we might be bringing in an engineer as well um and you know we're we've been part of many uh i don't know how do you guys call them when uh there's sort of like a launch party and all the graduates are there and you can go in and meet them and look at their resumes and right we've been to a couple of those events uh, there's some great talent so you, you this is it yoy is is living testament to the fact that there is opportunity for ga grads who commit to the curriculum and absolutely come out on the other side as part of the alumni and no it is it's a i mean the utmost respect for the brand and and the work that they're doing and if you were 
to offer advice, you know, to, to a recent graduate of, of product management, right? What would you tell them, right? They're, they're coming to you. How do I get a job? The, the age old, I have no experience. How do I get experience? Will you hire me? I went to GA, you know, what would your advice be to that person? Um, so I think, um, it's interesting because obviously there's a, there's a background to that, which is when you go to a place like GA, it's usually because you want to try to, you try to learn a trade that you perhaps haven't learned before, right? There are other people out there that will have engineering degrees and they will have design degrees and uh, will have all of these different experiences um, and that on paper might sound better or more qualified. Um, however, there are a couple of things that I think anybody can do and I've done myself in the past um, to be able to access an industry that uh, has competition but that also uh, you don't on paper at least you don't have as much experience as the guy next next to you the number one thing is uh, learning I think when I when I've interviewed people um, I've chosen the capacity and the desire to learn above experience so there might be somebody that although is not as qualified has so much thirst and is so hungry and really, really wants to learn what they're about to do. Um, more so than somebody else that has years of experience, but that they feel they know more. Um, and the especially working with human capital, I can tell you the people that have that thirst and that like that desire to learn will grow much faster and will will be a much better um, addition to the team. Uh, than those that feel that have already learned or they're more seasoned. Um, at least, you know, in our experience, that has worked really well. So that's number one. Number two is something that I'll, I'll talk about an example that you and I uh, had today, which is before you came in today, I emailed you and I said, look, uh, are there any questions that you would want me to know in advance so I can do some work and provide you with better answers when you come in? So that... I think that small nuance, that ability to say, look, you're coming in, uh, this is gonna be an interview. If you tell me the questions that you're going to be asking me, I can do some research, I can do some work, so I can be of better service to the people listening. Um, that small thing, uh, I think, can be uh, very valuable. And I've seen it in some people, right? Where in advance, they'll come to me and they'll say, hey, I was looking at your website, I was looking at your product, and uh, this is something you can do, this is something you can improve on. And it's, I was shocked. I thought it was amazing. Um, and that really, really helps somebody differentiate themselves from the rest. So what does it say about me that I shut your request down and said, don't worry about the questions, just, uh, just be there on time and be prepared? Well, I think you wanted me to improvise. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, here's the thing. I mean, and by the way, this is... You're a journalist yourself, right? You're a contributing author for Huffington Post. I which try is, to be. Okay, so this is a, so you must know on some level, even as you're saying that, that in journalism, it's, you know, you want that room for the conversation to unfold organically. You're, you're an intelligent guy, you're articulate, you're polished, and I want that room for the element of surprise so that uh, something amazing might erupt. And, and uh, for all of us here, the, the great value of this conversation will never happen again because it wasn't canned. Exactly. I wasn't prepared. I think it's a great analogy. Uh, one of the one of the big discussions that happened today with artificial intelligence is, is that 
we're likely to miss some of the natural things that happen with people, which is that we make mistakes and that we're imperfect and that uh, there's no way for us to answer the same question the same way twice. And so I think there's beauty in that. Um, and when you, when each of us write, when each of us communicate, and when each of us uh, showcase ideas or talk about the topics that we're interested in, there's so much nuance that comes with the imperfection and the opinions and you know the bias um, that I think machines will struggle to to replicate. Um, and there's beauty in that. So yeah, I'm I'm reminded of. Um there's a, a short story, The the Machine Stops, E.M. Forster. Do you, do you know it? I don't think so. So it, it was is futurism, you know, and it was written in a set, sort of, it was written in the 60s, I think. It was set in a world, you know, far beyond our time, although probably time-wise before 2016, but, you know, in the 60s, they thought that robots were going to take over way earlier than they have. But the, the fundamental premise was... In this time, we've all moved into our own sort of self-contained little pods and we communicate through screens and that's it. And, and in some ways, if you think about the way that we're using technology and social, some of that is, is has manifested, right? People don't go out, they just sit on their couch and they, I've got all my friends right here, I'm snapping, I'm doing this. The story, though, is fundamentally just about a boy who misses his mother and, you know, that sort of path back to human connection. And you brought up uh, humanism early on when you talked about your approach to design. This is another belief system that I share and my business partner and I share. We talk a lot about software, that human element, you know, and, and I think even in, in workflows, the best workflows are the ones that take the path that you already walk and then make it a little faster or a little more fun or a little more seamless, um, the technology doesn't interrupt you, you know? This is, there's a component, I think, of the humanism that it's, I don't know, it's uh, present. It not, it's not present in the way that it, it interrupts your, your focus, but that it feels um, organic. Organic is the word, I guess, of today. So we're getting way more philosophical than I, I even see this is a, than even I anticipated. I didn't have that plan for. You said you're a voracious reader. Yes. You mentioned the Alliance already. That's right. Any kind of two or three must read. You want to be in this space. You want to do well. You want to know the new, new thing. You cannot not know about it or blogs or podcasts, any, anything. You would recommend? Gosh, that's that's a huge question. Because um, I'm asking you to limit it. <laughs> exactly. It would be easy if I said, "Give me your top 100." This is how I react every time that I have to prioritize. Um, so, for somebody in the space, uh, I would think there's a great a great book actually, um, and a great man that I think has done a lot of work uh, into the psychology of building successful products. His name is Nir Eyal, and he wrote a book called. Um, the, uh, the hook model. And he talks about uh, how there are certain steps to be able to, to build a product that is habit forming. Um, and he wrote that book with Ryan Hoover, who is the founder of Product Hunt. Uh, and I think it's a very interesting book that helps you understand how the psychology works and, and how to build uh, successful products that, pe- products that people love. Uh, and if you take that and extrapolate into some of the most successful uh 
sort of social media products that scale very, very uh, vastly, you'll see that model implemented in them. So the hook model is a great book. Um, the power of habit is a fantastic book as well. In terms of product management, I mean, there are great podcasts. There is a startup podcast. There is the product hunt podcast that you can listen to. And uh, I mean, uh, in terms of uh, daily reads, uh, I read Hacker News. I read uh, Sam Alman's blog, uh, Sam Alman, the president of Y Combinator. Um, I read Paul Graham's blog. Um, there's some really, really great content out there. Uh, if you go into uh, Andreessen Horowitz's uh, podcast as well, they talk about technology and the future of technology and where it's going. And in terms of product management itself, it's it's an interesting thing. I think one of the greatest things that you're doing right now, uh, it's, it's getting out of the minds of the people into a form that we can all consume. And although there are different sources for a lot of the, the, the chess pieces, um, and, and, you know, within a company where uh, you're building a product, there isn't a lot of resources to teach the chess player how to move all those pieces. And I think that's really valuable um, to condense that knowledge and, and to be able to um, aggregate that and, and present it in a way that we can all look at it and consume it and even reference it every day to keep learning. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to see the results. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. You, this is my last question for you, by the way. Heads up, last question. <laughs> you kind of muttered under your breath before you panicking about prioritization. It was right. just a little sort of leaky data it moment. Was a big um, <laughs> you know, and so one of the sound bites, you know, that that I use, and I say this to clients all the time. You know, if if, if everything is important, then nothing is important. You know, when I ask you to prioritize the tickets, don't put ones next to everything. Um, do you have a, a sound bite of your own that's been kind of your? You know, we're in the meditation room, a mantra, if you will, that that kind of sums your perspective on life or your perspective on business or just something that gives us a little window into you as a person? Yeah, I mean, there are so many. Um, I keep I keep a, a record on Evernote. Uh, <laughs> of <all> my, <laughs> this is a technology Of all my block. thoughts, yeah, Evernote is, is a lifesaver. Oh, gosh, I wish I, I want to meet Phil Libin one day. What a, what a genius. Um, I think... Um, there's a concept that I really, really like. I think Steve Jobs might have mentioned this in, in some interview, which is we all can connect the dots backwards, but we cannot connect the dots forward. Um, and it's something very interesting to me to have the ability to, um, and it's fundamentally human, to have the ability to connect different pieces. So you don't just become very, very good at the one thing. Um, being multidimensional individuals, I think it's really interesting that we can become very good at the intersection of many things. Um, if you ask anybody, what is the number one thing, the number one interest that you have? A lot of people will struggle and will tell you, well, I like many things, right? Like, I'm afraid I'm going to become a generalist and I'm never going to be the guy for that or I'm never going to be very good at the one thing. Um, I think we should be less afraid of that um, and we should be constantly thinking about how everything in our lives, uh, everything that happens, all the experiences that we have and all the knowledge that we have can be connected into different intersections. Um, very much like our brain, like a neural network, there are many branches uh, and there are very, like, very many nodes where things get connected um, and, syn and synapse happens. I think knowledge works the same way, right? You take different concepts and suddenly you create something new. 
And that's what happens with technology and what happens with products, right? Uh, it's difficult to reinvent the wheel. Um, Tesla is using technology that was invented 100 years ago. They just managed to put it in a, in a beautiful shape, in a beautiful uh, car, you know, with newer parts and with big screens and, and, and suddenly become something new and amazing and, and you know, life-changing for, for many people. Um, and so that capacity to change, to, that capacity to connect different pieces, uh, it's something that I've seen in, in many, many successful entrepreneurs. Like I said, we're multidimensional, so why not exploit that? We might have a tough time putting that on the side of a mug, just so right. your famous quotables will <laughs> look more like an eye chart when, he, when you make it to startup vitamins. That's part of the art, right? <laughs> Distill it. Jacobo, thank you so much for, for your participation. We're so fortunate to have you be part of this. Whatever this is that we're building, I don't know, but uh, I think so many people, myself included, will benefit from these insights you've shared, so thank you. Of course, you're welcome. You're listening to 100 p.m., the official podcast for 100productmanagers.com. If you haven't been to our site, please check it out. We have so many great resources for anybody looking to learn more about product management or starting a technology business. I'm your host, Susanna Bate. Join me here. We've got a new conversation every Tuesday. We'll see you next time.